Thank you very much. <coughs> Welcome again to the service this afternoon. It's good to see you. And my prayer is that as we share together from God's word that we will be challenged and that we will be spoken to. I've given a title for the message today, God, Godly Wisdom Manifests in Christ-like Meekness. Godly Wisdom Manifests in Christ-like weakness. Meekness, rather. Not weakness, meekness. We've been going through James. It's a tremendous book. And as we've been going through, we've entitled the full series, Fully His. And have noted that James is concerned about how Christians are living their lives for Christ. We've been struck by the fact that James, the one skeptical half-brother of Jesus, is now completely committed to the resurrected brother, half-brother Jesus. And now he wants to encourage his readers to show by their actions and words that they too are indeed fully his. And the kind of actions and the kind of words that we say are powerful indicators of what's inside. And it shows to others the kind of person that we are. So the kind of things that we do and say are important. Jesus spoke to his disciples about that. He told them that you can tell a person by their fruits, whether they're good or bad. And again later he talked about what comes out of the heart. That's what is spoken. And so what's inside can come out in words or it can come out in actions. And so what we do and what we say is important. James has been dealing with that. In chapter 2, when we were looking at chapter 2, we noticed that it was the works that we do. In chapter 3, last week, we were looking at the tongue. So James is going to deal here with what those works are and how they are manifested. But I want to ask a question first before we look at the passage. James actually begins with a question too, and I want to give you the question first. I want you to think about it. He asks, who are the wise and understanding among you? So who are the wise and understanding among us? I was going to ask whether you'd make any suggestions, but maybe I better not. It might not be a good idea. <clears throat> but as you have been thinking about it, and perhaps you've been thinking of different individuals, what was the criteria that you used to decide those people who were wise and understanding? Was it because they're knowledgeable? Because they've got experience, they've been to Bible college or they have training? Was that the reason or was that what you were using as a criteria? Or perhaps I can get a bit more personal. Perhaps you were thinking me yes that's me I, I wouldn't put my hand up and I wouldn't say so that, I mean that would be proud I wouldn't want to do something like that but really I'm quite smug about the idea I have experience you see I've been on an OM team I've done mission trips I've been to bible school I teach I teach the kids clubs I've gone out in the creche and give the children talks I have lots of experience I'm a leader is that how you're thinking? I wonder. But perhaps there are some here tonight, this afternoon, who are saying, no, not me. Well, thank you, Lizzie, for your testimony. That was really powerful and wonderful. But, you know, I've only been a Christian a short time. I don't really know the Bible really very well. Not me. Don't look at me as a wise and understanding person. 
But we can all be tempted because even people who are very young in the faith, they can go to life groups, they can talk to their friends, and suddenly they realize that they're being asked questions or they're hearing questions that they can in fact answer. I can answer that question. Yeah, I know the answer to that question. And before we know it, if we aren't careful, we may be falling into the trap of thinking, well, yes, James is talking about me too. Well, let's have a look at the passage and see what James is actually saying. So let's turn to the passage. James 3, it's on page 1012 in the church Bibles. Uh, and we're looking at chapter 3. Chapter 3, it's the big, let, the big number is the chapter, and the small numbers are the verses. And so we're going to start at verse 13, where it says, Wisdom from above. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his words, his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, uh, full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't know about you, but that's a very challenging passage for me. So who are the wise and understanding that James is talking about? Perhaps it's those mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 3, the teachers. But if we were going into chapter 2, verse 2 rather, if you go into verse 2, it, James goes on to say, for we all stumble, and if anyone, and so on. So I think he's really beginning to include everybody in the rest of the chapter and the things that he's talking about. We are all included in this. There is no exception. But in asking the question, James isn't really asking us to identify those people who are wise and understanding, but rather he is asking the question because he wants those who are truly wise and understanding to show that fact by the way they live. And so he's saying that we will be able to, he'll make clear to those who are truly wise and understanding will be those that godly wisdom manifests in Christ-like meekness. Christ, as we will see later, will be at the center, not only of the wisdom that we need for godly living, but our actions will characterize a Christ-like weakness in our behavior. So James immediately goes straight on into the answer to the question. And it's interesting to notice, as we look at the passage, what does he say? He says, by his good works, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. It isn't knowledge. It isn't experience. It's not what we are able to do in the sense of being gifted, but rather it's as we show good, by a good conduct, we show our works in the meekness of wisdom. The challenge of let him show picks up again from the idea that we saw in chapter 2 and verse 18 where we were talking about faith without works is dead. 
And here, too, we are dealing with conduct that will result in a new life Christ is working out in us as we have just had experience, as shared with us by Izzy. Thank you. But that is not all that he says. It's not just showing the works by our good conduct, but notice he talks about the meekness of wisdom. I don't know about you, but when I read those, when that little phrase, I, I didn't quite understand what he might be trying to get at. And I'm sure that you probably also have the same problem. So let's look at them separately. First of all, meekness. What is meekness? It is not proud or self-serving, nor is it weak. We can put that aside. In fact, the NIV translation uses the word humility. And I, but I think it's more than just humility. Meekness is more than humility. Rather, it is a life under the control and guidance of God, which is where its strength lies. Like a horse with a rider on it, that horse is under control. It goes where the rider directs it. That's what meekness is like. It's like a horse with a rider. It's a person who is being guided by God. It is an inward attitude that does not resent Adversity, rather, it accepts God's dealings with us as good and therefore to be accepted without resisting or doubting that goodness. God is good and we don't need to resent it. We accept it. That's meekness. Moses, we are told, was one of the meekest men in all the world. And what characterized his life? He was a strong leader, but he accepted personal injury without resentment or recrimination. But it is the supreme example of Christ himself where we see meekness truly demonstrated because when he was there before those in his trial, he was there without resorting to any revenge or self-justification. In fact, he stood there quietly. He was accepting that this was God's will for his life and he wasn't fighting it. He wasn't resisting in any way. And we see Christ being the example for us of what a meek life is like. So James is talking here about meekness initially. But he's also talking about wisdom. Wisdom is the correct application of the knowledge of God that God gives to us. And in general terms, when we talk about wisdom, it's knowing how to apply the truths that we have in good ways and for good means and purposes. And of course, I think all of us will probably think immediately of, of those passages in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And here, fear, of course, is not that frightened, shaking in the boots, worried that God's going to zap us because we've made a mistake. But rather, it's that attitude that we want, that we know God, and that we're very conscious of his wonder and majesty. And we have an awe, and that we have a reverence, and that we have a, a tremendous uh, humility and acceptance of God as a result of it. So what God has shown us, we believe, and we act upon it. As someone has put it, it is not the ability to live in a manner pleasing to God because we understand his truth and live in a constant submission to the Spirit, applying that truth to our lives. It is the ability to live in a manner pleasing to God because we know the truth and because we are in submission to the Holy Spirit. And therefore, James is saying that our actions and our behaviors will manifest God's wisdom, which manifests Christ-like meekness. 
But as we came on to the next verse, we have a, a problem. It says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We live in a society today where we, are, we have two contrasting wisdoms side by side, and we're always tempted to either go one way or the other. And so we find here that this contrast is very different from the one that we've just seen in verse 13. It's very, very different. We live in a world where lots of people do not know God. They claim to be living their lives in wisdom. But as James goes on to show, he raises two uh, attitudes immediately which show or describe very clearly what the society we're living in is like. Jealousy and selfish ambition. These two characteristics sum up uh, what the wisdom of this world is like. It's rooted in man. It's self-centered and it's sinful. And it's contrary to the wisdom that was spoken of in verse 13. So what is jealousy? I think perhaps all of us can identify or give a definition of jealousy. It's a spirit of discontent because, because we feel deprived as we compare ourselves with others. So it's discontent and we're comparing other, with ourselves with others. And as we compare ourselves with others, it begins to give us a sense of discontent because they have things that we want or we have things that we don't want but they don't have and so on. Furthermore, it is upset with others because when we compare ourselves with others, we lack what they have whether it be material things, gifting, or social status. And so we become upset. Jealousy makes us upset because we haven't got what other people have. And third, thirdly, it makes us unhappy with ourselves because when we compare ourselves with others, we feel we are lacking what we feel we should have and don't have. And this is a problem we all suffer with. And, hope, and I'll deal with that a little bit more in a minute. Selfish ambition, what's that? Well, that's personal glory, self-centeredness, me, I, my. That's the attitude that we see. It's concentrating very much on my status, recognition, position, and power. And James tells them not to boast and be false to the truth. For to boast about this kind of wisdom is to display uh, a lie. It's a lie to the truth. Because if we live like this and yet claim to have wisdom... We are not living a truth. We're living a lie. And as we've noticed already in the reading, this kind of lifestyle is certainly not a wisdom from above, from heaven, from God, but rather it is unspiritual, it is demonic, very strong language indeed. And the trouble is that when we became a Christian, we didn't suddenly lose that part of our lives that Paul calls the flesh. That is still very present, and we are conscious of a battle within us. We're fighting the influences around us that are very anti-God. We're fighting them because that wisdom is not the wisdom from God. It's not what we really want to do, but we find that we're tempted to do it. And we're well aware that these two wisdoms are very, very different. They're going in different courses, and they're in conflict 
and we're surrounded by it. I don't know about you, but you might turn on the TV and it's there on the TV. Social media, it's there in the media. This holiday, this holiday, or this car, this new iPhone or whatever it is, they're always putting it before us. They're wanting us to be jealous of what other people have and you have it too. You can have it. You deserve it. That's the attitude that the world is seeking to present to us. And it doesn't have to be just things and things like that. But rather, it can be even at work where people want promotion. They want status in the company. They want status in the office. And so they're always uh, conniving to try and improve their position or trying to get uh, a standing with the boss or for promotion purposes. They're always seeking something else that's there, something for themselves, something that's going to raise up their standing with others. And so this, this battle is ongoing, isn't it? I'm sure you're all conscious of it, and Paul is very conscious of it too, and he tells us and reminds us in Galatians chapter 5.17, for the desires of the flesh, that's our natural man, are against the spirit, the spirit that we received when we became a Christian, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. It's a battle going on. And they keep us from doing the things that you want us to want to do. So whether we like it or not, we're in a battle. And we need the Lord Jesus to help us as we seek to deal with those sorts of things. So if a person harbors these two attitudes that James has mentioned in their hearts, jealousy and selfish ambition, they are in effect living a lie because they're claiming to be wise but conducting themselves in a way that denies that claim. So these two attitudes... He focuses on contrary to the godly wisdom which manifests itself in Christ-like meekness that we're seeing in verse 13. So verse 13 really is the key verse, and we need to keep that verse in mind. But I just want to talk a little bit more about jealousy, because I think this is a problem that we all struggle with at some point or other, even in church. And it's something that we can see in church if we aren't careful, and Trinity is not exempt from this problem either. We are all human. We need to remember that. So how do we respond when someone seems to have life all together, but we are struggling with a problem? Why me? Not fair, maybe, how we are responding. How do we respond when someone seems to be doing very well financially, for example, and they can do the things that they want to do, but I can't because I can't afford it and I want to? Or what about being overlooked in a job allocation that you were really looking forward to doing in church? Uh, leading a life group perhaps or uh, hosting a life group or doing something like that and and, uh, you are not accepted at that occasion. Or when someone else seems to be in the limelight, someone else seems very popular and everybody seems to congregate around that person and talk to that person, but me, well, I seem to be um, sitting in my chair and nobody comes over and talks to me. Is that the problem that we're facing? I know... Or more specifically, how did we respond when the elders of this church were appointed last summer? And I didn't feel I was being validated by the other members of the church. Perhaps our pride was hurt when they didn't get when we didn't get as many endorsements as we thought we deserved. I know I could have easily been tempted to do go the wrong way. Our egos would have easily got in the way, and we could have made a fuss and criticized the process and the and the outcome. But James tells us that if we allow this to get out of hand, what we be, that we become critical of the leaders or the decisions or whatever it is that's hurting us or we're jealous about, 
it can lead to disorder and every evil practice. This wisdom from earth does not promote unity or a welcoming environment in the church. There's always conflict, there's disorder, there's vile practices. It's very self-focused and doesn't help the church. It makes the church very unattractive. But we turn to verse 17 now. Look at verse 17 and we get a very, very different picture, don't we? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown but in peace by those who make peace. That's a very warm feeling, isn't it, in those verses? A very nice, comfortable aspect there. James has just told us what wisdom from above is not like in the previous verses, but now he's going to focus on what it really is like, that wisdom, that godly wisdom manifested in Christ-like meekness. The first thing that we notice is that its source is from above. It's from where God is. In other words, it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from my environment. It doesn't come from my society. It doesn't come from the things around me. It comes from God. That's the source of this wisdom. That's the source of this meekness. That's the source of these actions, these activities that we do in the meekness of wisdom, this Christ-like weakness that comes to us as we believe. It starts from God. And the first and preeminent attitude that wisdom produces is purity. This is its basic character, and the word pure denotes innocence and moral blameless. It is more than just sexual purity, but speaks of the absence of any sinful attitude of motive. Psalms 51.10, the psalmist is crying out to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, he prays. Because this is the fundamental aspect that gives us the truth that we need to live our life with Christ. For some of us, it's easy to think wrong thoughts, for example, about situations or about people. And that we believe the lies that Satan brings in to our lives. Our thoughts, life, can easily lead us astray. So it's not only the heart, it's the mind. It's lots of things that can be affected can affect the purity of the heart that God longs to see being developed in us. It's supernatural in its source. We can't uh, produce it. We can't make it happen. We have to trust God. We need to ask God to help. And unlike the wisdom on the earth, it has sevenfold excellencies in its attributes. The first three are the opposite to jealousy, selfish, and ambitious person who, are, who is thinking only of themselves and is dry, driven by demonic wisdom because they are peaceable. Peaceable or peace-loving is especially important coming at the head of this list and specific virtues. And furthermore, it's emphasized again in verse 18 where we find that the fruit or the harvest of righteousness is going to be a peace uh, full situation. Unity is one of the key points that James is wanting to uh, bring out here, I think. And the opposite, and it's the opposite of the conflict and disorder that we talked about in the previous section. 
The next two are probably related to the first, related to being peaceable. That is gentle. Gentle, to be gentle is not to be harsh or prickly. The Lord was gentle, we are told. The overseers of a church, they are to be gentle as well. Paul describes his ministry among the Thessalonians as a being gentle, like a mother caring for her children. It's that very warm, caring uh, attitude that uh, is very encouraging of calm, peace. And it's open to reason too. NIV has submissive here, but I don't think it's quite submissive in the sense that we understand the word submissive. It's a different word. It has more the idea of being easily persuaded or willing to give ground. And two ideas uh, come out of here. Sorry. We're easily persuaded, open to reason. We're easily persuaded and willing to give ground when when we don't have unalterable theological and moral principles at stake. We're willing to listen. We're willing to open our hearts to other people's ideas and take it on board and listen to them and see if what they're saying is really... uh, aligns up with God's word and we accept them if it's not a problem with the principles that we believe. So if we're gentle and if we're open to reason, we will be promoting peace and unity. The next two seem to be linked as well, full of mercy and although it doesn't say it, also full of good fruits. This aspect of being full of mercy To be merciful is to treat people not as they deserve. Jesus frequently highlighted mercy as the key ingredient of a godly person. And James provides his own definition, love for neighbors that show itself in actions is how James would probably define this full of mercy. Be merciful, Jesus said, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. And it's also full of good fruit. It flows out our acts of kindness, our acts of mercy, our acts of love to others. It flows out and it's seen as good fruit, uh, a genuine fruit that is produced. Then it's impartial. How we translate this world has produced a number of different ideas by different commentators. And there seems to be two main ideas. Uh, One idea is that James is stressing the incompatibility of Christianity and partiality and mentions mercy in this context. And we consider that when we were looking at the earlier parts of chapter 2. When a a rich man or a poor man comes in, how do we treat them? It's to be impartial. But then the other idea is that it can also mean undivided. And in chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 4, that idea comes across And so we find perhaps that what James is seeking here is that we're dealing with an undivided loyalty to God that's needed. But both those aspects are true, and both those aspects, I think, can be seen and need to be seen in our lives. And the last one is sincere. We're honest, truthful, transparent, nothing to hide, and can be relied upon. And so such people who, such people will be consistently displaying this virtue of wisdom and be someone whom one can rely upon for advice and counsel. And Christ is the supreme example of this wisdom from above. That is what a transformed life in Christ looks like. For as Christ is, so are we being changed into his likeness. For that is what God is doing in our lives. And the result, as we've seen, is a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace. 
which contrasts very dramatically with the disorder of every evil practice that we saw in the wisdom from this earth. And notice it's a harvest. It's not just fruit. It's a harvest. Speaking of abundance, it's going to be fruitful. It's going to be abundant. And it's going to be peaceful. But I can imagine many of you looking at this passage and thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm challenged by this. I'm going to try harder. The more I try, the better I'll be at doing this. That's what I've got to do. I've got to do harder. But it's not going to work like that. Just like New Year's resolutions, we can keep them for a period of time. But after a while, we get tired. After a while, we become discouraged because we keep failing. We're relying on our own strength. It doesn't work. But then maybe others of us are thinking and looking at this passage and say, well, as I look at this passage, I have failed. I'm failing all, all the way through this. None of these things, or very few of them anyway, I'm managing to uh, keep. But that's what the word of God is, really, as we saw in chapter 1. It's like a mirror. It will show us how we are failing. It will show us the things that we have got wrong in our lives. And it will show us that we need Christ, that we need his Holy Spirit. We need the life of God in our lives so that we are able to be what God wants us to be. Because we cannot do it in our strength. We need Christ. We are being united with him. And so the answer then is not to rely or trust on ourselves, but rather it's to rely on God for his guidance, for his help, for his working in his life. That is what he loves to do, and that's what he wants to be doing in our lives. And so our response to God is the product of God's work in us, our abiding in Christ and he in us. If we love him, we will keep his commandments, Jesus said to the disciples in the upper room. It's the natural consequence of our relationship to Christ, just as works are a natural consequence of our faith. So godly wisdom manifests in Christ-like meekness will be the consequences of the wisdom that we receive from God from above. We are reminded in chapter 1 that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it, and he will give it to us generously. He will not hold back. But the second thing that we need to keep in mind is that Jesus Christ himself is God's wisdom. He is the one from above. He is the one, he told Nicodemus, I'm the one that has come down from above. He is the one who is that wisdom. And as we are united with him, and as we are living our lives with him, we will find that the Holy Spirit enables us and we begin to do things that before we were unable to do because God is working in us, giving us that power, transforming our lives as we trust and rely on him each day. I was once, uh, I'd like to give a personal illustration if I may here. Uh, There was a time when I was trying very hard to have a good relationship with someone and it wasn't working out very well. Perhaps you can identify with this. Whatever I did or whatever I said seemed to be either misunderstood or backfired and I wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, I don't know whether you can identify with that at all. And I got to a point one night when, as I was praying about it, I said to God, God, I give up. I give up. I can't make this work anymore. So if you you don't do something, it's not going to work. So it's over to you, God. You make it happen. If you want it to happen, you make it happen. 
I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do any more. I've had enough. And the amazing thing was that God started to work. But he didn't change the other person, (laughs) surprisingly. He began to change me. I didn't realize it initially, and it wasn't until some months later as I began to see things happening that I began to see that God had begun to change my life because I had opened myself up. I had let God come in and change me, let God do something. And that's really what God is wanting us, wanting from us today as we consider this subject. Because it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging subject. It's a subject I feel that none of us can really do on our own. You, you just look at through those lists in verse 17 of the different things. I think all of us would struggle. But the great thing is that God, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, can do that in our lives. And when we realize that it it isn't us doing it, but God doing it in us, then we are able to relax and allow God to do things in our lives. It may not be always comfortable. It may not always be convenient. It may even cost us something. It might even do us... It might even take us through some adversity or trials or hardships. Because sometimes, although we, in our head, want to give our lives to God, in our hearts, we're holding back. We're resisting. There are parts of our lives that we don't want to let go. But until we can let go and allow God in, let him ride our horse and lead us in the direction he wants us to go, in the direction that he wants us to go and give us the power to be able to jump the fences, we will not uh, see God's life being worked out in our lives. And the great thing is that that is what God is wanting. It's when we are at our lowest. It's when we are at our most incapable. When we are unable to do it, that's when God can step in. We were reminded in chapter 1 that God wants to mature us. And he does it through trials and difficulties. Why? Because it is in those situations that our faith in God is tested. It's when we get to the end of ourselves, can we really say, God, I give up? In Japanese is a good word which hasn't really got a good English de- translation for it, but surrender, I guess, is a, is a way. I give up. I surrender. I'm not going to fight anymore. God, you take over. You're the one. And immediately, God will start to come in because that's when he can start to work. Paul could say, when I am weak, that's when I am strong. Not because of his weakness, but rather because in his weakness, Paul had to rely upon God. And that's what we can do as well. When we get to a point where we can't do it ourselves, then we say, over to you, God. You take responsibility. It's your responsibility. If you want this to happen, then you make it happen. 
But there is a, a problem that we can face because we don't really want to surrender. We don't really want to give up. We want to say to God, yeah, God, you take over, but I'm going to make the decisions. doesn't work because you've got a conflict in leadership there. And God will only step back. If you're going to fight God, he won't fight you. He'll just step back. And so as we come to the close of this section, we realize that really, if this is going to happen in our lives, is this wisdom, this godly wisdom manifested in Christ-like meekness is to be seen in our lives, we can't do it. God has to do it. But God will only do it when we say, okay, God, you take over. I can't. May God help us so that this godly wisdom manifesting Christ-like meekness may really blossom here in Trinity and that we will be living to the glory of God in our daily lives and to his glory.